You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. So we're going to turn to another one of those small New Testament books. As a matter of fact, the smallest New Testament book. Turn to the book of Hebrews and then back up one page to a book called Philemon. I don't know, maybe you have um, read through this book when you read through the New Testament, or it may be that you've never even heard a single sermon on it and don't really know what this book is about. Well, we're going to go through this entire letter today, and it is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful picture of grace and mercy. So the book of Philemon, if you go to the book of Hebrews, back right up there, one single page, only 25 verses. Let's pick it up in verse 4. So Paul writes this letter to a man named Philemon, and he says this, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. Father, we pause in this moment and we just praise you for the work that has been doing, being done on college campuses in your name. We're thankful for those who put their faith in you. But Father, as we saw this morning, there are thousands, thousands of young people on college campuses all across this country who have no one to shepherd them. And so Father, they're being shepherded by, by professors who are far, far from you and from your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would rise, raise up more young people like Austin, send them out, equip them, prepare them, and that they may stand boldly upon the truth of your word. Thank you for our time together, and thank you for your word. God has sent it this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul writes this short letter, only 335 words in the Greek language, for a very specific purpose. As a matter of fact, I think it's in this letter where we see another side of Paul entirely. We often think of Paul as the, as the guy, you know, when he writes Romans, that hard, straightforward theologic or theologian who is just kind of laying down the truth. And oftentimes Paul is presented as a guy who's kind of hard around the edges. But this letter, this short letter, I think, shows us an entirely different side of the Apostle Paul. He writes this letter to a guy by the name of Philemon. Philemon is a Roman citizen who has quite a bit of wealth, quite a bit of money. The reason we know that is because he owns servants or slaves. And this letter is written specifically to ask Philemon to do something that quite frankly 
Well, it's outside the cultural norm, outside what the Romans would allow to have happen. Paul writes a very personal letter to him. Philemon, more than likely, we don't know for sure, but Philemon, more than likely, came to faith in Christ as a result of hearing Paul proclaim the gospel. Now, Philemon, as we're going to see in the open verses, has a house church. This church is meeting in a place called Colossae. Colossae is just maybe about 50 or 75 miles from a town called Ephesus. And more than likely, when Paul spent those two plus years in Ephesus proclaiming the gospel, more than likely, Philemon made the travel from Colossae to Ephesus, heard Paul preach, surrendered his life to Paul or to Christ, and through Paul was discipled. Because there is a strong relationship between Paul and Philemon. And then Philemon goes back to Colossae. And by the way, Paul never traveled to Colossae that we know of. Now, the letter that he wrote to the church, that we know Colossians, that letter, we know that he wrote that letter to a church that was meeting in Colossae, not this particular church, but another one. More than likely, this letter and the letter that we know to be Colossians was delivered at the same time by a guy by the name of Epaphras. And Philemon goes back to Colossae and starts a church in his home. Look at the opening verses. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. Paul just happens to be in a Roman prison at this point in time. We know that Timothy traveled to Rome and ministered to Paul while he was in prison. And apparently it was during that time that Paul wrote this letter, this very personal letter to his friend Philemon. He says to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Epipha, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that is in your house. So, so Paul writes this letter to Philemon, not to the church necessarily, but to Philemon. And we find out that already within this house church, there is a, a leadership structure that is present there. We don't know that Philemon was the one who was leading the church, but nonetheless, he was directly involved. And so Philemon, being a wealthy man, just like many other Roman families during this time, they owned slaves. And Philemon owned a slave by the name of Onesimus. Now, Philemon hasn't heard anything from Onesimus in quite some time because Onesimus ran away. And this was a common thing to happen. When, when, a, when a slave would have the opportunity to flee, they would. And, and so Onesimus has fled, but not only did he run away from Philemon, his master, but he stole some things from Philemon when he left. So, so I don't know how much time has passed. Apparently quite a bit of time has passed. And Philemon has not even thought about probably the name of Onesimus. He probably just said, okay, I've lost that particular servant. It is what it is. And has just let him go. But then he receives this letter from Paul. And as he reads the letter, the opening part of the letter, which we'll look at, is very warm. It's very loving. And Paul talks about their relationship. When we read one of these letters in the New Testament, when we read any letter, we're only... We're only open to one side of the conversation. So it would kind of be like when you're standing in line at Walmart and, and that person who's getting on your nerves is standing in front of you and they're talking on the phone. I know that's probably never happened to you. And probably in those moments you had just warm feelings of grace and mercy, right? Yeah, right. Anyway, so you're there and they're on the phone and they're talking very loudly and you only hear one side of the conversation. You don't hear what the other person's saying. So when we read one of Paul's letters or Peter's letters or John's letters, it's much like that. We only hear one side of the conversation. The amazing thing about 
the story we're going to learn about this letter is we really don't know how it all turns out. We don't ultimately know how Philemon responded to Paul's request. All we know is Paul's side of the story. What this letter does reveal, though, is something beautiful about the gospel. In fact, in 335 Greek words, we have a beautiful picture of the gospel and what it can do in a life, how that it, it changes your identity and how that that, that identity then uh, responds and changes how you respond to other people. So let's take a look at it. Let's pick it up in verse 4. This is Paul saying to Philemon just how much Philemon means to him. He says, I thank my God always while I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So Paul says, listen, I know what you're about. And the reason Paul knows that is because Paul spent quite a bit of time with Philemon. We don't know how much. But we know that Philemon loved God. We know that, that he was focused on the gospel. We know that he was making disciples. We know that he had a church in his house. And Paul celebrates all that God is doing in Colossae through Philemon. He says in verse 6, actually in verse, verse 5, he says, Because I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And then Paul says, this is what I'm praying for you, Philemon, and for your church. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, it looks like Paul is saying that he's praying for these leaders and for Philemon to share their faith. Some of your translations, that word share, it may have fellowship there. The word is actually the Greek word koinonia, and the koinonia is this, this idea of, of family doing life together. In other words, that inside the church, as born-again believers, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are called to live out our faith together. So the idea of koinonia is that unity and that love that we share with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So what Paul is saying to this church, what he's praying for for this church, that in the fellowship of their faith, that they may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. In other words, he says that as they do their faith and as they practice their faith, they will come to realize all that Christ has invested in them. And as they come to realization that all that Christ has invested in them, they'll be even more focused on what God has called them to do. Then it flows from that inward change that they had experienced. Verse 7, he says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. That is an incredible compliment from the Apostle Paul. But look at verse 8. This is where he gets to the core of the letter. He says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Now, this is how we know that, that Paul spent quite a bit of time with Philemon. Probably one-on-one -on -one discipleship, just as Austin was describing, spent quite a bit of time together. So Paul says to him, look, I'm in a position as your spiritual father to command you to do what I'm getting ready to command you to do. He said, I'm, I'm in the position to do that. But Paul doesn't do that. Notice what he does. He says, yet for love's sake, verse 9, I prefer to appeal to you. So in other words, Paul has a big ask that is coming, and it's a big one. And so what he's doing to Philemon is he's saying to Philemon, now look, I could command you to do this, and I'm in a position to do that, but rather I'm going to appeal to you to see the truth here and respond accordingly. So let's read on and see what the request is. He says, I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Paul is in a prison in Rome, has been there for quite some time. He says, I appeal to you, 
for my child Onesimus. Now it's at this point, let's, let's pause here and let's, let's put, our, let's put our, our feet in the shoes of Philemon for just a moment. So he's, he's got this letter from Paul. It's been delivered to him by a guy named Epaphras. Now, Philemon would be really excited to get a letter all the way from Rome. He knows that Paul is in prison. So you can imagine just how excited Philemon is to get this letter. He has no idea in this letter that the name Onesimus is going to come up. So in those opening verses, I would imagine that Philemon is really warm and fuzzy on the inside, having all these compliments from Paul. But then he gets to this paragraph where he reads these words. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Now at this moment, I would imagine, I'm just guessing here, I would imagine that Philemon sits back in his chair and goes, oh no, not that guy. You got to be kidding me. I haven't even thought about Onesimus now in months, maybe a year. I, I, finally, I finally got over my anger. I finally got over my frustration. I finally got over my, my sick feeling about him stealing from me after I treated him so well and he runs away. I have finally gotten to the place where I got that name out of my head and now Paul writes to me about Onesimus. But not only that, look at how Paul refers to him. My child Look at the next part, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, this is incredible. Onesimus flees from Philemon, just runs. Now, Colossae is in Asia Minor. If you, if you turn in the back of your Bible or you pull up your app and you pull up the map, you can see that Asia Minor is this large landmass, right? And Ephesus is kind of off to the left and then kind of up to the north, uh, east a little bit is Colossae, not too far away from Ephesus. But Rome is way over here, a good long distance away from Colossae. So when Onesimus leaves, he runs as fast as he can and wants to get as far away as he can. And the furthest way away he could get would be Rome. There's a nice road there that the Romans have built. He would have to board a ship, go over to Rome. But he's trying to get as far away from his master as he possibly can. Now, he goes to Rome. There's a quarter of a million people in Rome, maybe more at this time. Onesimus gets off the boat, walks into this vast, massive city, and of all people that he is able to connect with, but the Apostle Paul who discipled his master. Now, some people would say, well, that was pure luck, wasn't it? But you know better, don't you? You see, from the moment Onesimus left Philemon's house, God was directing every step that he took. Onesimus thinks that he's free. But in fact, what God was doing was taking him right into the path, right into the doorstep of a guy in prison named the Apostle Paul. Folks, that is not happenstance, and neither is it in your life. You know, we, we can go through a lot of hard things in this life. We live in a very broken, messed up world. And, and you could get to a situation where you get the bad doctor's report or, or maybe you have a, a child, a son or a daughter or a grandson or granddaughter that has departed from the faith. Maybe, maybe they went off to college and you thought they were solid and ready to defend their faith only to find out that 
in that first philosophy or world religion class, they completely, and here's the word we're hearing over and over again today, deconstructed their faith. And in those moments, if we're not careful, the thinking can creep in that where is God in all of this? Right? Where, where is God in, 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 this, in this diagnosis I've got? Where, where, where is God in, in my marriage that is failing? Where is God? I have worshipped him. I've, I've been to church. I've, I've given to the church. But in this moment, this valley that I'm in, I look around and I don't see evidence of God anywhere. And if God can direct the steps of a runaway slave into a city of Rome with a quarter of a million people, into the direct path of Paul, a guy who is lost, then God is certainly directing your steps. Even though you can't see the end, you can't control it. You, you see, that's where the issue comes. We try to control the outcomes, right? We, we want these things to all work out. We're trying to shuffle things around so we worry about it. We try to take control of it. We have all kinds of contingency plans. When in reality, what God is asking us to do is just to, to rest and to slow down and to pause and let him do the work that he is absolutely doing in your life right now. A sovereign God who's working in the lives and on behalf of his children, even now. So Onesimus flees. And now notice how Paul describes him. He describes him as his child. Paul describes himself as his father. Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. In other words, he had ran from you. He was of no use to you anymore. But now, but now I am going to send him back. Look at verse 12. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. This would have been the moment that Philemon would have really had a problem. He would have really had a problem because he knows where this letter's going. He knows by the words that Paul is using that, that something has happened to Onesimus. And what has happened to Onesimus is, is that Onesimus has surrendered his life to Christ. And, and so now as, as Onesimus has now surrendered his life to Christ, that changes everything. And that's what Paul is writing this letter. The purpose he's writing it is that he's going to send him back. And the Romans, the Roman law, provided that a master could do whatever he wanted with a slave who had stole from him and run away. In fact, the Roman law would provide that if this master so chose, he could kill him, could take his life. That's what the Romans, the Romans lived by the sword, right? So they would give this Roman citizen who is a slave owner, they would give him absolute outright permission with no retribution that he could kill this slave on the spot. And I have to wonder what Philemon was thinking all of these years. What was inside of his heart? But now he's confronted with the reality that his mentor is now sending back this slave. What is he going to do? If you've done any study on Paul at all, if you've done anything online, I, mean, I really caution you on this to be careful with what you search online. But oftentimes you'll hear this said about Paul. You'll hear this say, well, why did Paul, why did Paul, especially in a letter like this, why did Paul not condemn slavery? I mean, why did he not, why did he not speak more forcefully about slavery? 
Now, oftentimes when we ask that question, what's happening is, is, is we're taking our understanding of slavery, what was practiced here in this country for many years, that, that awful, awful time where, where people were owned as possessions. And people who were from African descent were owned and enslaved upon plantations to do work. We often take our concept of slavery and we push that back into the Roman Empire when in fact, that's not exactly what slavery was. Now, certainly it was still considered possessions. So Enesimus was considered a possession of his master Philemon, but there's a lot of differences. For example, oftentimes... Those who were enslaved were very wealthy. It crossed all ethnicities. It was all different ethnicities were enslaved in Roman times. It could be that, that you got in debt to someone and you couldn't pay your bill, so you would become a slave to that household for a period of time. The way slavery was set up is that it wasn't perpetual. You wouldn't be a slave your whole life. There would be times where you'd be able to be set free. It was part of not only the Roman law, but other law as well. So it was not exactly the same as what we understand as slavery. But the reason Paul didn't come out in his letters and condemn it was because, number one, that's what he was called to do. Number two, he ends up doing that anyway. And here's how. Paul knew that the best way to deal with the Romans was the gospel. He says this to Timothy in the first letter. You see, Paul didn't go head on towards a Roman government and a, and a charge of social justice. What he does is he makes disciples, sees people come to faith in Christ, and as that happens, he begins to undermine the entire system of slavery from the inside out, town by town, city by city, moment by moment. So while he didn't write some huge letter about slavery and condemning it, he is absolutely undermining it, and this letter is proof of that. Notice what happens. He says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment of the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by, by compulsion, but out of your own accord. Paul says to Philemon, now Philemon, you know what is right here. You're a follower of Jesus. You know what is right, but I'm not going to command you. I'm not going to force you, but what I am going to do is I'm going to reason with you so that you will come to the right conclusion. Notice what he says in verse 16. So he's asked Philemon to receive Onesimus back. Verse 16, here's the key of the letter right here. Receive him back no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. You see, right there is how Paul is undermining the system of slavery in Rome. He says to Philemon, Philemon, now, when he left you, he was a bondservant. When he, when he ran away from you, and yes, he stole some things from you, and that was not right. But, but listen, Philemon, he's coming back to you not as a doulos, the Greek word for bondservant or slave. He's coming back to you as a brother in Christ. He is no longer subjected to you. He is now subjected to Christ, and you together, you and him, are now brothers. <laughs> you see, here's what the gospel does. The gospel reconstructs our identity. It changes who we are from the inside out. For those of you who've never put your faith in Jesus, you have tried desperately for years to fix a heart problem from the outside in. 
And what you have done is you've tried to fix the problem with all sorts of ways. You've even tried religion, maybe multiple religions. You've tried all kinds of things to fix that broken heart that's on the inside of you. And you've tried to do it from the outside in. And it has not worked. And I'm here to tell you that it will not work. Because there is nothing from the outside that can give you a brand new heart on the inside. When I say heart, I'm not talking about the muscle pumping blood in your chest right now. I'm talking about your soul spirit, who you are the choices that you make, the way you live your life, there is no way you can change that from the inside out or from the outside in. Only Christ can change you from the inside out. It changes your identity, who you are. You are no longer lost, but now you're found. You're no longer in darkness, but now you're in light. You're no longer an alien, alienated from the love of God. Now you are sons and daughters of the Most High. You are no longer on your own. You are now part of a fellowship of believers that spans both time, space, and all over the globe. You are part of a family. If you were raised in a broken home, then God, through the gospel, restores that through the fellowship of the church. If you were, were poor and broken and you had nothing, at the moment you confess Jesus Christ, you have everything. If you have come to that place where you are broken and things are holding on to your life and you can't seem to break free, Jesus gives freedom and he says, I will give it indeed. Freedom indeed. Real freedom where you're not trying to fix yourself anymore, but I fix you from the inside out. Paul says to Philemon that the gospel takes him from being a common household slave to a brother to a brother, to a family member. The gospel reconstructs our identity. He's now a beloved brother. He's part of the church. And oftentimes these slaves would be marked in their body. If you look at verse, look at verse um, 16, the latter part of it. He says, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. In other words, how much more of a reconciliation did it need to be? And he says, both in the flesh and in the spirit there, these, these slaves would often be marked somehow in their body, oftentimes on their ear. And they would be marked as being a slave. And so Paul says, not only was he marked by you, but now much more so in the Lord. He is now your brother and receive him as such. I don't know if you've ever watched the um, Antiques Roadshow. I don't even know if that show's still on, but I remember years ago I watched an episode. And this guy, this guy comes walking in and he's got this big, this is like a big pot, like a clay pot. He's got it under his arm. I think there's one image where he's just got it by the lip and he's just kind of swinging it around, walking around, waiting in line to see the expert. And, and literally, they get a little bit of his backstory. This, this pot had been in like his attic, his mom and dad's attic for years. I think part of the story was he had played with it as a kid. It's just always kind of been around. And, and I think in the interview, he says, I don't really think it's worth much, but I'm here today since they're here just to see if it's worth anything. He sits down with his expert. And as soon as the camera pans to the expert, you can see the experts like, freaking out. I mean, just like their eyes are like glaring and they're even afraid to touch this thing. And you can already tell something's up. Well, the guy, he's oblivious. He's just sitting over there talking about, yeah, this pot's always been in our family. And I used to put my money in it, play with it as a kid. And this person's eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And finally, this person says, well, I, you know, I just want to inform you that we've you know, checked it out. And there's only seven of these pots that have ever been found. This is the eighth one. 
is from the Ming Dynasty in China, and it goes through this whole huge thing about how unique this thing is, and how that no one's ever even seen one outside of a museum. And this guy just comes walking in with it. The thing is worth a half million dollars. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think he walked out of there differently with that pot than he walked in? Do you think he's just swinging that bad boy? You know, pops the trunk, throws it in the trunk, and just drives down the road. No, I would imagine that he has very cautiously got it wrapped in about 10 layers of bubble wrap. He don't want anybody near him. He's probably got some guards around him or something. Something tells me he doesn't put it in the trunk. I bet he's even worried about driving home with it. And I bet he's thinking about all the times he dropped it and all the times he kicked it as a kid, all this time having no idea that it was worth more than a half million dollars and was one of the most rare items out of the Chinese dynasties. You see, Onesimus' identity has changed. And I'm convinced after several years of ministry now and meeting people who are struggling with depression and anxiety and you know, really wrestling with that. And I am not diminishing that at all. It's a real thing and many of you have wrestled with that. But I am convinced that for the folks that I have talked to and even in my own life when I've struggled with it, it comes down to those moments when I forgot who I am in Christ. I have forgotten that, that I am born again, saved, set apart, a child of God, redeemed, blessed, that I get to call God my Father, and my Father is not ashamed to call me His Son because of what Jesus did on the cross. I am convinced that when I spiral off into these places of depression and anxiety, and I struggle with that, that at times with that, that I'm forgetting who I am in Christ. And I wonder if it's not the same for you. That you're a priceless masterpiece. And there's not another human being that will ever live that's just like you. And that God knows the very hairs on your head. He knows the very contents of your heart. And he loves you so much that he would allow his son to be condemned to a criminal's death, even though he was innocent, on your behalf. You see, when you, begin to, when you begin to think about all that God has done and when you begin to, to kind of roll that around in your head and you begin to be grateful for, for it, what I have found is, is the depression, the hardships, the stuff that's going on in my life, and quite frankly, sometimes I get whiny. What happens is, is that all just melts away. And the next thing you know, I begin to see myself the way God sees me. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says that that now that you are in the kingdom, you are in Christ, you are now no longer condemned. If there is a condemning voice in your head, if you are a follower of Jesus, if there is a condemning voice in your head, it is not your father. I think just that simple truth in and of itself is incredibly freeing. Our, our teenagers, our, our young women, our young girls who are growing up in a society that says they must look a certain way, they must weigh a certain amount, they, they must have a waist size this size, and they must have uh, their hair a certain way. And movies and social media push it and push it and push it. All of a sudden, the condemning voice creeps up in their head and tells them that they're less than. Let me tell you where that voice comes from. It doesn't come from their father. It comes from darkness. And if we entertain it long enough, we listen to it too long, the next thing you know, we join in with it. Just take for an example, let's just 
just you think amongst yourselves in your own mind. Think about how you've spoken to yourself this past week. If you're a follower of Christ, just, just review just some of the conversations you've had with you and you along about the things you've said to yourself. Those things can be pretty horrific. As a matter of fact, you can be so hard on yourself that another human being has never spoke to you that way. And oftentimes we take that voice that's in our head, we attribute that to God as though God is saying, and God's up there saying, I never said that, I love you. You're a, you're a masterpiece and I have so much more for you. But the voice in your head, you're listening to it more than you're listening to me. And then out of that comes depression, anxiety, hardship, all kinds of things. And what I want you to see this morning is Paul says to Philemon, Philemon, this guy who's coming back to you is your brother. It's not because he's a good guy. It's not because he's fixed himself. It's because he surrendered to love and the grace of our king. Look at verse 17. Paul says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Now, that is a really hard thing, I would imagine, for Philemon to accept. You see, it's, it's one thing for, for Paul to say to Philemon, hey, accept him back. You know, just let him come back home and you just deal with him however you want to and, you know, just, just let him come back home. See, that's one thing. But Paul goes beyond that. He says, he says Philemon, when you receive him back home, don't, don't do the least required of you. Do the most that's required of you. In other words, if Paul was going to go back and visit, if, if Paul was going to make the trip to Colossae, and, and he let Philemon know, hey, I'm coming. I'm going to be there in a few weeks. And, you know, gets released out of prison. He's going to Colossae. How do you think Philemon would, would, would treat Paul? Man, he would roll out the red carpet. Man, you're going to stay with me. I'm going to make sure you have the best to eat. I'm going to make sure you have the best clothes. We're going to have a week-long revival, let you preach. And, man, it's just going to be awesome. Paul says to Philemon, hey, um, if you're going to truly forgive him, if you're going to accept him back home, well, then you're going to have to forgive him and you're going to have to treat him like a brother. Not only just a brother, but treat him the way you would treat me. I would imagine that Philemon at this point is ready to put the letter down. I, I often wonder if I, could, if I could go back and see this. I wonder how much wrestling Philemon did with this whole prospect of accepting this guy back. Well, what about the money he's owed? What about what about what what about what Onesimus stole from Philemon? What about that? Well, Paul addresses that. Look at verse eighteen. He says, "If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, well, charge that to my account." <laughs> you see, Paul. Not only does the gospel reconstruct your identity, well. It renovates all of your relationships. That vertical relationship to God, once it is restored through Christ, once we confess our sins and we are born again, not only does it affect our relationship to God, but it affects our relationship to everyone else. Paul says to Philemon, Philemon, you know this, that as a child of God and as a brother in Christ, you know that you would receive him just as you would receive me. And by the way, I don't want anything to come in, in between you and him and this reconciliation, so charge the money to my account. I'll pay it. Well, now later Paul goes on to say, well, now let me do mention this, Philemon. I, Paul is really slick in this letter. He says to Philemon, now I want to remind you, Philemon, that you owe me quite a bit. <laughs> You owe, Philemon, you owe me quite a bit. I just want to drop that in here. He drops it in the letter. You owe me quite a bit, but, but I'm not, I'm not going to command you. But just so you know, you're indebted to me, bro, for what I've done for you. So I'm just saying, 
if you're indebted to me and I've, I've given you grace and I've given you mercy and I've pointed you to Christ, then, then maybe this brother who's coming home, maybe you, should, well, maybe you should treat him as well. So it renovates our relationships with others. He's moved from a slave to a brother. So Paul has a hard ask not only to receive him back, but to treat him with kindness and respect, just as he would treat Paul the same way. Verse 21, this is where it gets even, even more amazing. Paul says, I'm confident of your obedience. I like that. Paul says, I've made my argument. I'm going to leave it with you, but I'm confident that you're going to be obedient. How, I mean, how are you going to respond? Right? Paul, Paul's saying, hey, you know, we, we have a strong relationship. I love you. You're doing the work of God there. But listen, he's coming home. You need to receive him just as you would receive me. And I am confident that you will be obedient to this. And then notice this one last line right here. He says, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Wow. So here's, here's the ask. Not only, Philemon, are you going to receive him back home, a guy who did you wrong, a guy who, who stole from you. Not only are you going to receive him back, but you're going to receive him back the way you receive me, with love and kindness. But not only are you going to receive him with love and kindness, hey, Philemon, you're going to go above and beyond you're going to go above and beyond, and you're going to bestow a blessing on him. So not only does the gospel reconstruct our identity, and it, and, it, and it renovates our relationships with others. Look at this. It restores our attitudes. You see, Philemon's attitude probably has not been great over the last couple of years about this slave. And now Paul looks at him and says through this letter, hey, you're going to forgive him. You're going to receive him. You're going to bless him on top of everything else. When the law of Rome said, no, he owes you money, therefore you can take his life, you can enslave him any longer, whatever you want to do, you can do it. Paul says, no, that's not how we're going to do it. We're not going to operate that because we're not citizens of Rome, we're citizens of the kingdom. And in the kingdom, we do things differently. You're going to bestow a blessing on him. This was beyond cultural expectations. You know, it's easy to say, I, I, I forgive you. It, it's easy to sometimes say that. It's a whole lot harder to do life with that person who's hurt you deeply, to love them unconditionally, to not hold it over their head or bring it back up, to not talk about it to other people. That's what forgiveness is, is that I no longer hold you in contempt that I am truly setting you free. When I say that I forgive you, I am truly setting you free. But not only that, we're going to go another step and we're going to, we're going to pour out a blessing on you. We're going, to, we're, going to be, we're going to be generous to you beyond that. Well, that's the way of the kingdom. That's the way of our king. So how would, how would Philemon be able to, to wrap his arms around this? Well, because what Paul is instructing Philemon to do is the gospel. You see, I had broke the law. I was on the run. And I deserve death. The law was stacked against me. The law declared that I was a sinner, lost and undone. The, the law described me as someone who is alienated from God. And I was on the run. And I deserved death for my rebellion. But then there was this mediator who stepped in, Christ the righteous. He steps in. And he bridges this gap between me and God because God and I were a long, long way apart. And Christ, the mediator, accepts me 
not my sin, but accepted me in my, in my brokenness, in my sinfulness, in my rebellion, the awful things that I was doing and the awful things that I was thinking, Christ said, come to me and I'll clean you up. I'll accept you. You remember the old song, just as you are? I will accept you and I will clean you up. But I'm, I'm accepting you to change your identity, to change who you are from the inside out. So I, I placed my faith in Christ and Christ paid the debt for me. A debt I couldn't pay. A debt that I should have had to pay, but, did, but, but in that grace, Christ pays that debt for me. My identity is changed. My relationships to others are healed. And then guess what Christ does? I mean, if it wasn't enough that he would forgive me, if it wasn't enough that he would, he would declare me righteous, but guess what Christ and the Godhead Trinity does beyond that? They give me the Holy Spirit to live inside of me give me a church to be part of, give me a calling and a purpose in my life, guarantee that I'm going to be in heaven with God forever, that all of that is the blessing on top of the blessings. It is beyond anything that any of us have ever deserved. So I would challenge you this morning to first take a look at your vertical relationship to God. Where is it? Where do you stand? Have you truly surrendered your life to Christ or are you just playing a game? And the way you will know is how you live with others in your horizontal relationships. Are you filled with hatred? Are you, are, you, are you filled with unforgiveness and you have no conviction about that? Well, that speaks to a brokenness in that vertical relationship with God. Once that is restored, once you are reborn, then it begins to affect everything else in your life, your marriage, your, your job, everything else as God heals your relationships. And then on top of all of that, God pours out a blessing on you that you never deserved. So in the book of Philemon, in this beautiful letter, we see the mercy of God, the grace of God, the restoration that God offers through the gospel. And he simply puts it in front of you and says, now you respond. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.